0: Stories told of three sisters, ages 92, 94, and 96, who all live together in the same home. And one night, the 96-year-old draws a bath. She puts her foot in and pauses and yells down to the sisters, Was I getting in or out of the bath? The 94-year-old yells back, I don't know. I'll come up and see. She starts up the stairs, gets halfway up and says, Was I going up or down the stairs? The 92-year-old is sitting at the kitchen table having tea. She's listening to this conversation. She shakes her head and she says, Man, I sure hope I never get that forgetful knock on wood. I'll come up and help you as soon as I find out who's at the door. You know, the, the point is is that you know we all need people in our life that we can count on, depend upon, and to trust to be there when we need them. But, you know, as you you probably know, unfortunately, many of us have been disappointed when such times occur by the failure of others to do so. You know, if you've ever experienced such a moment, uh, then you'll understand more clearly the passage and the message of Jesus in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. And assuming that you have your Bibles, turn with me to this passage where we'll address the question today, can God count on you? Can God count on you? Luke chapter 14, starting with verse 25, we find this account. Now, great multitudes were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own wife, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple." Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks terms of peace. So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is, either, it is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile, but it is to be thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know, when Jesus left the Pharisees' house, as we saw in the last time we were together, great multitudes, great crowds in quantity, numbers-wise, followed Him. But Jesus was never impressed by, you know, the shallow enthusiasm of large multitudes of people. Because as God, He knew their hearts, and He knew the depth or lack of depth of their relationship to Him. And so He always made sure that they understood clearly those who maybe deceived themselves into believing that they were one of His followers that he clarified with them very, you know, very abruptly at times what it meant to be a follower or a disciple of Jesus Christ. You know, he wasn't impressed with their, this crowd, this multitude, because he knew that there were those who came after him because they just wanted to see miracles. Many of them were like Herod. Hey, you know, send for Jesus. I want to see him do a trick for me. He had heard about him, heard about all the things that he did. Well, I want to just see something. And there were many who followed him for that reason. There were others who heard that he fed the hungry. And there was another time in John 6 where Jesus you know, preached a sermon that deliberately thinned out the crowds. And they were just people who wanted to follow him because they were looking for a meal ticket, a free ride. And that was going to be easy street from then on following Jesus. Hey, this is great. We don't have to work hard anymore for food. All he's got to do is hand it to us and it multiplies. Thousands of people are fed with just a handful of you know, goodies. It's like, man, this is a good gig. You know, many came to him because they had physical afflictions that they wanted healed. And and, and that's, you know, there's a difference between going God to meet our physical needs and going to God for our greater need, which is spiritual in nature. You know, there are many people I run into regularly that, you know, pray for physical healing, pray for physical healing. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But more importantly, pray that God would use the physical affliction in your life to see your greater need is spiritual healing. See, but they, want, they weren't following him for that. And there were even some who just wanted to overthrow the Roman government, and they were just waiting for him to establish his kingdom so they didn't have to put up with Rome anymore. So there's a great multitude of people that were following, but they came to him only to see their wish list fulfilled and not to seek him, not to hear truth, not to receive what God's plan was for their life. And it's, it's no different than many today who, you know, seek out, you know, the crowds who seek out those will tell, tell them what they want to hear. You know, hey, this is what's in it for you. This is what God wants to do for you. And it has nothing to do with, well, wait a minute. What's God's plan for my life? What does God want to accomplish through me? And there's a drastic difference. It's 180 degrees apart. Those who seek God and say, listen, you know what, God? You're God. I'm not. I don't know anything. You teach me everything versus those who come to him and say, this is what I expect you to do for me. You know, with this backdrop in mind, we come to a sermon Jesus preached that deliberately thinned out the ranks. You know, he made it clear that when it comes to personal discipleship, you know, God is more interested in quality than quantity. You know, in the matter of saving lost souls, we saw in the last message, he said, you know, he said, go out into all the highways and byways and proclaim the message of God's love for lost people, that God loves the world and he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Go out and proclaim that word, man. Reach the world with the word of God because God wants to fill up his house with those who will come to faith in Christ. But there's a difference, a distinct difference that we see here in the matter of personal discipleship. He wants only those who are Willing to pay the ultimate price. You know, and from this and other passages, there appears to be a distinction between a believer and a disciple, though the term I know is often used interchangeably. And so we clarify the definitions. A believer, by biblical definition, is one who has recognized his or her need for God's forgiveness you know, identifying with what God says, that there are none righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned, fall short of the glory of God. There's not a person that hears these words that can say in the honesty or the the sincerity of their own conscience that you've never done anything wrong. And God says, you know what, because all of us are born into the world sinners, we're separated from God, and none of us are right before God, and every one of us need to recognize that first, and once we recognize it, now we'll see our greatest need is we need forgiveness. So therefore, it's no different in our earthly relationship. You take somebody who says, you know what? I don't understand how I hurt your feelings. And because I don't understand it, therefore, I won't seek your forgiveness. Once we recognize and understand, oh, I did do that. And if that hurts your feelings, I didn't mean to do that. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? But until somebody recognizes that they've done a wrong, they never seek to make it right. And so what God's message to the world is, we all need to understand that we have done wrong before God. And through Adam, sin entered the world, and all of us are born with the sin defect. And because of that, we are all born into the world, alienated from God. We all do wrong, and God's indictment against us is true. Once we recognize it, it's like, what do we do about it? And God says, well, what you need to do is you need to turn to me. And you respond by grace through faith to the finished work of Christ. I loved you and sent my son, Jesus Christ, in the world to die for you upon a cross. He was raised again three days later, and whoever receives this sacrifice on their behalf, to them he has given us the privilege or right to be called children of God to those who believe in his name. And according to the Bible, a believer is one who has repented of sin, responded by God's grace through faith to the finished work of Christ, his death on the cross, the power of his resurrection, and has received him as their Lord, their Savior. From The consequences of sin Now many times in our culture We'll hear people say things like Well you know Well I'm a believer I believe in God I talked to a guy Not too long ago At a hospital And I walked in I started to have a conversation The first thing he said Was hey but I believe in God I said you know what That's a great start That's a great start But what do you believe About God Who is God What has he done What do you, what do you mean You believe in God I mean that's the most Nebulous term you can ever I, I believe in God Good for you The devil believes in God so do his demons. You know what? But they shudder at the thought of God. What do you believe about God? And it needs to be more specific. There are others that say, but, you know, I'm, I'm, a, you know, I'm a Methodist, or I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a Catholic. I'm a Baptist. I'm an Anabaptist Presbyterian. You know? <laughs> They're just throwing out stuff, man. They're just throwing it out. and hope it sticks. And it's like, well, what, what is that? What does that mean? What does that mean? I don't know what that means. What does that mean? Do you believe? What do you believe? And so God takes these backgrounds that we have, this diverse background, and he takes all of that, you know, and an awareness of God's a good thing. You know, the heavens declare the handiwork of God. I believe in God. That's good, but it's not enough. And he takes all that sensitivity towards sin and towards God and our need for forgiveness. And he says, okay, now let me take this big old funnel of humanity and let's funnel it down to the narrow way or the narrow gate, the narrow path, the narrow plan of God, and that is this. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Crucified. There's only one way to heaven, and that's through him. And faith in him is death on the cross, the power of his resurrection. That's it. So all of these backgrounds are all good, and they all give us a spiritual sensitivity. And I know mine did, and I'm sure that yours did. And God used all these things in our background to bring us to the confrontation with the ultimate question, and that is, who do you say Jesus is? Now, whether you believe in God or not, who is Jesus? Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Son of the living God. He is the only way that you and I can find forgiveness in eternal life is through Him. Who do you say Jesus is? Is He your Lord? Is He your Savior? Is He your King? Is He your God? That's the only answer that's acceptable to God. And so when we look at all of this, once it's established that we are believers by God's definition, born again by the will of God, not by our own human effort... ...that we believers are then to go into the world and make disciples as we're going. God makes believers and then he entrusts us to make disciples, which is fascinating. So not only do we become disciples ourselves, but we are to make disciples and as you go baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, an outward profession of an inward decision, you know, to be baptized. And then to teach the world, those believers now, to observe all the things that Jesus has commanded us. And he says, and I will be with you always to the end of the age. So we take a person who has come to faith in Christ and now we say we make disciples of those people who are willing to pay the ultimate price 100% sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ. A disciple by definition is, is a person who is learning, who attaches himself or herself to a teacher in order to learn a trade or a subject. You know, our nearest equivalent today would be that of an apprentice, a person who works underneath someone else and they mimic what that person above them does, you know, by watching and doing what what they see before them. In the case of Christianity, a disciple is one who watches Jesus Christ, attaches himself or herself to him as their ultimate teacher, and then they do or act upon what it is that Jesus teaches us to do. You know, that's what, you know, the WWJD bracelets, you know. It's like, what would Jesus do? Well, it's not for the purpose of just asking the question. It's for the purpose of asking the question so then we can put into action the answer. And so often we just stop at that. What would Jesus do? Well, that's what he'd do. Well, what, what, does, that have to, what does that mean to you? What are you going to put into action? You know, and that's why the word disciple was the most common name for followers of Jesus Christ. And it's used 264 times in the Gospels and in the book of Acts altogether. So, as a recap, salvation is open to all who come by faith, while discipleship is for believers willing to pay the ultimate price for God's sake. And we'll distinctly see the difference as we go on. All disciples are believers, but unfortunately, not all believers are disciples. And we need to look at the difference there. And I know that there are people that are going to agree to disagree in these things, but we need to look at what the context is and take a good hard look at what it is that Jesus is teaching and then, you know, deal with it in our own lives. So in this passage, we're going to examine uh, Jesus cautions his listeners not to take discipleship lightly. And he notes the first thing, and I'll call it the discipleship in verses 25 through 27. Discipleship means complete enlistment. Now a great multitude was following him, and he turned and he said to them, You know, if anyone comes to me and he doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now to begin with, a disciple must be totally committed, sold out, 100%, remember the pig, you know, the, 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 you know, 100% sold out to the task for which they've enlisted. You know what, Lord, I, I want to be your disciple. I want to be your follower. I want to I follow after you. I want to mimic the things you do. I want to learn from you, and I want to apply those things, and I want to do that. You know, I'm, I'm signing up. I, I want to be a disciple. I just don't want to be a believer who's content with just coming to faith and then letting the, the worries of the world, the, the, the distraction of riches, you know, everything else in life, you know, kind of take me away from what it is that I'm ultimately here to do, which is to bring glory and honor to you. I want to, I want to have that kind of, uh, of relationship with you. And all these people were following him. He's kind of like, hey, you know what? You know, do you really want to have that kind of relationship? You know, discipleship's not forced upon the believer. We're to make disciples. It's not automatic. When you become a believer, you're not automatically a disciple from the standpoint of being made into a disciple to be conformed to the image and likeness of Christ, to grow in the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we're born again, man, you know, we don't know anything other than, you know what, I repented of my sins I've trusted in Christ. But beyond that, I don't know what it means to be a Christian. I don't know how to live a Christ-like life. I don't know how to be like Jesus. I mean, if it was all instantaneously and automatic, Automatically, we would need to have a Bible study. We would need to get into the Word of God. It would all be just right there for us. We've got all the potential that we need, but we need to develop that. And we develop it through time in the Word of God, time in fellowship, We you know, in prayer, time with one another and believers, you know, building one another up. It's not something that happens naturally, automatically. And, and the way I liken it and look at it, I was thinking about those who enlist in the military, those who enlist voluntarily because they are committed to freedom. They are committed to overthrowing oppressive evil. They're committed to protecting the borders of the boundaries of our nation. They're committed. They are sold out and committed to the fact that, you know what, I don't take freedom for granted. And I'm going to sign up myself. They're not coerced into service like in the old days when you, know, when you were drafted and you had people that didn't want to be there for nothing. You know, today it's like, I want to be there. Now, some may be there because, you know, it's a good job, good retirement, good career, nowhere else to turn, nothing else to do. It's a great way to go there. But there are others who it's like, you know what? I'm committed to freedom. I'm committed to the causes of our nation. I'm committed to the founding fathers and what they've done. I'm committed to the fact that every day that I get up and I'm not worrying about my kids getting blown up in a, in a, in a car bomb or something like that on their way to school or going grocery shopping. I'm committed to preserve the protection of our nation. And I'm sold out. And you know what? And that's what a disciple is all about. We're not coerced into the service of God. We are volunteering, enlisting as it were, completely enlisting because we are sold out on what Jesus Christ has done for us, the freedom that we have from sin, the eternal life that he has given us, and we are there because we want to serve him and please him because he is our ultimate commander-in-chief. It's not coerced. It's not forced. God doesn't want anybody coerced and serving him. It's a voluntary army. And that's why he said, if you really think you're going to follow me, you better take a good hard look at what's going to be involved. Because it's not going to be easy street. And he's saying that, you know what, you need to get your priorities in order. You know, think about this opening declaration of Jesus. If you're going to follow me, then guess what? You're going to have to forsake everybody and everything in order to do so. The priorities are, if you want to come after me, and you don't hate your own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even your own life, you can't be my disciple. There's no way. It's not possible. And I'll tell you what, that would shake up the crowd. And, he, and you know, Jesus did that all the time. When he was with massive people, he would throw out an opening statement, and everybody in that crowd would want, What? Just like we do, it's like, what, you can't, you got to hate your father and mother and your brothers and sisters, and you got, I mean, what, what's he talking about? And that's the whole purpose of that kind of declaration. It is to get people out of the lazy routine of not thinking and to think deeply about spiritual truth. Too many of us put more time and effort and energy into the things of this world than we do in digging into the spiritual truths that we find in Scripture. We're to search the word of God like a great treasure. And when we find those nuggets and those pearls, you know, there are times where I yell out. I'm like in my office, whoa, Eureka, discovered it. This is good stuff. This is great. Look at this. My family thinks I'm crazy. But, you know, it's like this is great stuff, man. When you find these nuggets of truth, how many of you, when you're reading through the Bible, you go, whoa, that's good. I missed that. I read that book I don't know how many times. I never saw that. I just saw that. That's good right there. That is good stuff. It's all good stuff, but you know you can't find those nuggets, those gems of wisdom, those pearls of great treasure without spending time in the Word and digging into it. And so what he's saying is, you know, you got to hate. Well, you know what? And for people who go, wow, what kind of God would tell you to hate your mother? Usually mothers say that, <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like, what kind of God is that? Tell you to hate your mother? I don't know, what's that all about? Hate your father, your wife, your children, your brothers? And sisters? Well, you know what? I mean, read the read the Bible. You think God's telling us to hate our fathers and mothers when he tells us to honor your father and mother? Think he's going to tell you to hate children when Jesus, you know, had children come to him and hold them and put them on his lap and he said, you know, it's tough for the children not to come unto me. You think he's going to tell us to hate children when he tells us to love them in other places? Think he's going to tell a husband to hate his wife when he says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church? I mean, that's not the message. That's not the point. Don't get hung up on that. What he's saying is, he's, what do you think he's going to say? You know, hate your own life, walk around punching yourself in the head. I hate myself. I hate myself. I mean, you think that's the message. That's not the message. The message that he's saying is this. In comparison to everybody else, if you love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength... It'll seem like you hate them in comparison, but he's not telling us to hate people. He tells us to love people. Now, we can dote on one another too much. You know, we can spend too much time catering to one another, but we can never love each other too much. We're commanded in Scripture to love your neighbor as yourself, to, to, to love people. And so it's not a matter of not loving them, and it's not a matter of an aggressive, aggressive hatred. What he's saying is, in comparison to loving Jesus... It'll seem like everything else is hatred by comparison. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Is that true in your life? You know, is Jesus number one in your life? You know, and so often if you ask that question, if you're asking, I'm asking, oh, yeah, absolutely. But the question is, how do you know that? How do you know? It's easy to say these things. Oh, yeah, you know what? God's number one in my life. Really? How do you know? I'll tell you how you know. You're tested. And when you're tested, you find out if what you think you know is what you truly know. And until you're tested, you don't really know what you think you know if you really know it. You know what I mean? (laughs) But that's what testing is all about. See, I'll give you an example about what happens where Jesus said, you know, I come to bring a sword and there's going to be division in families. He's not saying you're going to cause it, you're going to hate people, and that's what's going to cause a division. He's going to say, you're going to love me, and that'll cause a division. I had a, a gal in an organization, a baseball organization, come up to me and say, hey, I've got to share this story with you. I said, what's up? She's there. One of our head scouts, our, our chief scouts, top scouts, came to me the other day and said, you know, I don't know what's going on with my family. She said, what do you mean? She said, you know, I got two boys. This guy said, I got two boys. They don't smoke, they don't drink. They don't run around. Now they're going to chapel. They're reading their Bibles. And he said, you know what? I have no idea what they, where they got that from because they don't take after me. And I thought, whoa, can you imagine? I mean, a dad who's disappointed because his sons are out there drinking, smoking, running around because, you know, hey, a chip off the old block. But that's what happens, though. And that division is there. I'll guarantee you, if you love Jesus more than family, it'll seem like you hate them to them. You know, another young lady that came to me one time and said, you know what, she came from a a broken family, just a tragic background, just nothing but trouble and pain in her life. And she had come to faith in Christ. And because of her faith in Christ, her dad will no longer speak to her. I can relate to that. I'm sure many of you can. We've got a good friend who's a dentist. And his greatest struggle right now is he says, you know what, I come from a, a denominational background our family has has grown up in this denomination. We've gone to this church and and my grandparents went there and my parents go there and my relatives go there. Everybody goes there. We're all part of this church. But I'm not growing and and, and I'm not learning anything and I'm really struggling with how to make a break from that and get plugged into a Bible teaching church where I can learn and grow in my faith and, and grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know what? How do you do that without offending these people? You can't you're going to offend them and tell them to, you know, get used to it. We've all been there. But you know what? If you love Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and he's your greatest love, then the rest of the world has to deal with that decision to follow him. They may not like it, and I'll tell you from personal experience, they don't. My birth father, who I didn't know while I was growing up, about 15 years ago or more, I was invited to preach at an Easter service. He came in the back with his wife, listened to what I had to say, walked out of the door, and I've never heard from him since. They were supposed, we were supposed to have dinner together that day, never showed up, found out later, didn't come because he heard me preach, didn't like anything I said, and didn't want to have anything to do with me. And you know what? I mean, that's his loss, not mine. Because, you know what? I love Jesus, and I'm not going to compromise for any human relationship because at the end of the day, I'm accountable to him and him alone. See, we all go through that. We all struggle there. And anyway, the point is we need to have our priorities in order. And the greatest priority of all is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you know what? Everything else is going to have to just fall into place, take it the way you want it, whatever. And it doesn't mean that we're rude or obnoxious or arrogant or anything like that. It's just a reality that, you know what? Sometimes that's going to happen. But you know what? Whatever we sacrifice... On his sake, as Peter said, "What's in it for us?" Hey, you know what? Whatever you give up, this side of eternity, to be restored, to you a hundredfold in the kingdom of God. There is nothing you're going to give up. And so we're there. Some of you are there right now. And I'm just going to challenge you. You know what? Be more concerned about pleasing your God than pleasing people. And at the end of the day, they may think that you hate them, but that's not it. You just love Jesus. You know, and if they can accept that, then great. If they can't, don't want anything to do with you, that's life. And that's the message that he was trying to get across, is that you think you want to follow me? Do you really? Are you willing to pay that kind of price? And if that wasn't enough, you know, he goes on to to say, hey, there's also, you know, our plans are affected. You know, you think about our plans are affected. But when you put it all together, John Bunyan, you know, knew all about sacrifice for the cause of Christ. They came to John Bunyan and said, you know what, you need to quit preaching. And he said, I can't quit preaching. He said, well, we want you to quit preaching. If you don't quit preaching, we're going to throw you in prison. And he struggled with that. He said, man, if I get thrown into prison, who's going to take care of my wife and my children? Particularly, he had a blind child at the time. He said, who's going to take care of my, my blind child, my wife, my children, if I get thrown in prison? You know what? I, I, I. But you know what he said? He said, but it's not an option for me. I can't neglect the gift that God has given me. I cannot stop proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ before the world. And so he was thrown into prison trusting that God would take care of his family. And it was while he was in prison that he wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress. Millions of people were led to the narrow way of salvation through that book. It was because of his obedience to God in the time that he had in prison with nothing else to do but write a book that God used that darkness, that trial, this, this devastating thing that happened in his life for the greater cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What I'm learning, and I hope to impart, upon, impart to you and that you will learn the same thing is this, don't ever get so hung up on what perceives to be a trial or a negative thing or darkness in your life because God, through that darkness, his, bright, his light shines even brighter. Against the backdrop of darkness, light shines tremendously. That's why if you go to buy a diamond, they put it against a black velvet background so that the the, the diamond shines. And so when I look at this cancer and other trials and tribulations that you and I will go through, I praise God and say, Lord, use that darkness in my life to project more clearly the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Use it for your glory and for your purposes, like John Bunyan. uh, You know, use it that he would have that time to be able to write about Jesus Christ, the narrow path. And that's precisely the point that Jesus is making in Luke 14, 26. Our number one priority must be to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if we do, we will be obedient to his commandment and his leading in our life. i got to believe it caught the attention of the crowd. like it catches our attention today. Man, I don't know if I'm willing to do that. See, this is where so many of us fall short. You know, we put our family... And we, and especially in our culture where family doesn't mean anything, and I praise God that Christians have a, a high value of family, a high value of parenting, a high value of children. We should, we should do that. But, but where we we kind of slip and fall is that, at what price? Some of us value our children so much that we'll spend more time in a day shuttling them between sporting events and other activities than we do in a month praying for them. Or sharing biblical truth with them. You know, we talk about soccer moms and getting in the van and driving from here to here to there to there to there. And, oh, you know, it's all because we love them. We want to be there. We want to support them. We want to encourage them. And that's all good in and of itself. But then the question comes in, where does spiritual truth fall in? Where are you teaching them about the Lord? Where are you teaching them about spiritual truth? You know, one of the greatest curses of our culture today is club sports. Because back in the day, you know, people didn't have activities on Sundays because our culture w- was committed to going to church on Sunday. But the further we have gotten away from God and the further that He has become from a priority from us, then all of a sudden we're crowded out because, you know what? We don't have time for God because, oh, you don't understand. My son or my daughter, they got this and that and this going on for the weekend. Hey, I've seen your months. Well, you know what? We're really busy with... With what? With what? With what is going to have any eternal value? What is the purpose? What is the end result of all of these activities? And listen to what I'm saying carefully. There is nothing wrong with any of those in and of themselves, but we must have a proper priority. Where is God in that picture? And I've just, I'm just so, I get, my mind is just boggled by people. like, you know what, my, my kids on this club team and that club team and this traveling team and that club What for? Oh, because they're going to get a scholarship. Oh, they're going to be a professional athlete. Oh, you are so foolish. <laughs> Look at the numbers. Just look at the evidence. It is a business that's promoted to cause parents to buy into something so that people who do that can make a living trying to tell you that your kid's going to be the next Mia Hamm in soccer or Michael Jordan in basketball or somebody else in baseball. And the reality of it is this. If they're good, they're good. And they will find you. If you're not good, (laughs) give it up. And move on, and it's not even the kids; it's the parents. It's not the kids. I mean, I see kids all the time in sports, and so they hate every minute of it. Yeah, well, my dad's making me. Why? Because your dad wasn't good either. <laughs> True. Isn't that the truth? Because your dad couldn't make it, so he ain't going to rest till you make it. Listen. Let's impart spiritual truth. Let's impart values. Let's impart balance. And listen, you know what? I've, I've been there. My son played baseball. My daughter played soccer. We went on all these things. We did all this. But I'll tell you with a clear conscience before God and before man, it never stopped us from keeping the Lord number one in our life. If there was ever a conflict, then you know what? I'm sorry, you're going to have to get a ride with somebody else or you're not going to be able to make it or whatever it was because we've already made a commitment to the Lord. I made a commitment to teach and preach the Word of God and that will never interfere with that. God comes first. And they recognized that and they understood that. You know what? And they still love us. It's okay. They realized they weren't that good after a while. You know, when you start looking, you go, man, there are people that are good, and then there are people that wish they were good. And all I'm here to tell you is, you know what? Don't buy into the lie at the expense of the spiritual development of your family. If you love God, it'll seem like you hate, you know what? And the best thing some of us need to do is to hate our children, like the Bible tells us here and that doesn't mean hate them. It means to love Jesus with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength so that they just think you hate them because you're not doing for them what they think you should do, but you're doing for them what God wants you to do and you're imparting spiritual truth that will carry them through time and eternity. If that's not enough, he goes on and says, you know what, whoever doesn't carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple." What he's saying is, you know, who's not, whoever's not willing to die for me, you know, let, let's, let, let's, make, let's get this clear once and for all while I'm kind of getting these things off my chest here. And that is this. You know what? A cross isn't this thing you've got to bear in life. I hear this all the time. It drives me crazy. It's like, you know, you don't understand. My mother-in-law is the cross i got to bear. Well, you know, you know, she may not be the most fun person to be around and to deal with, but she's not a cross. You know, or my boss is a the cross. The, no, your boss isn't a cross to bear. Your coach isn't a cross to bear. You know, this child's not your cross to bear. This disease isn't your cross to bear. Listen, when, when, when Jesus said, unless you're willing to carry a cross, everybody in that audience knew what it meant. It meant, unless you're willing to die for my sake, you can't be my disciple. And they knew that because Judas, not the Judas that we're familiar with, another Judas rose up at one time and tried to have an insurrection against Rome. And basically they took 2,000 followers of this guy and crucified him all over the place. Every one of them had to carry their cross and they crucified him. And everywhere that you walked on the roads of Jerusalem, you would look around and you would see people hanging from a cross. So when Jesus was saying, unless you're willing to carry a cross, they all understood it wasn't your broken down car, your illness, your mother-in-law, your child. It was unless you were willing to die for my sake, you cannot be my disciple. He's clearing out the ranks. Are you willing to die for his sake? You know, that was the progressive accusation against Job. Think about it. Hey, you know what? The only reason he loves you, God, is because look how blessed he is. If you take away all his stuff, then he's going to curse you. And God had everything taken away from him. Then it was, well, yeah, but if he was suffering physically, then he wouldn't love you anymore. Then he would curse you. And God said, you know what? You can do whatever you want. Just you're not, you can't take his life because all of life is in God's hands. And he said, you can do whatever you want. Any affliction that you want, you can't take his life. And I'll prove to you and I'll show you. I will test him to show you how wrong you are about my servant Job. And that's what he did. And you know what? And Throughout all of that, all Job said is, I come in naked. I'm going out naked. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How can we accept adversity from God, not prosperity? And in everything that happened to Job, he never cursed God ever once. How do you know you've got that same love for God in your heart? And the only way you'll find out is if you're tested with adversity. I was thinking about that. I was laying in the hospital the last time I was in the hospital, and I was on the gurney, and some of the, some, some of the folks here were here were there, and we were laying, I was laying in a gurney in a hallway waiting for the doctor to come out to say whether he would do the surgery or not because if the cancer had spread to my uh, liver as they thought it had, they weren't going to do it. And I was laying in a hallway in this gurney thinking, you know what, God, this guy can come out and say that, hey, sorry, we're not going to do it. Your time from our perspective is is, you know, is numbered your days are numbered which they're all numbered but from a different perspective and so at laying I can honestly say that you know what God gave me a piece about that and, and I told Linda I said you know what no matter what he says it doesn't matter because God is in control and it's only when you're you're pushed to the brink of that type of experience do you really know and understand whether what you say you believe is really as true as you think it is And I praise God for the grace that he gives us and the mercy that he gives us in those times of testing and trials. But I praise God that, you know what, I know something about my relationship with God today that I only thought I knew then, but now has been demonstrated by experience. And that's what Job said. You know, know, I've heard about you, but now I see you for who you really are. And I've got peace knowing that you're in control. And you can't manufacture that. That's just something that happens at that moment in time. And how you've walked with the Lord will dictate how you respond. And His grace is sufficient for us in our times of weakness. His strength is perfected. And so when we go through this, the question that I have is, you know what? How about you? Have you completely enlisted is that true of your relationship with the Lord, like like William Borden said? And he got to the end of his life. I have no reserves. I have no retreat. I have no, I have no retreat and no regrets. I'm truly a disciple of His. See, discipleship also means careful evaluation. Verses 28 through 33 says, "For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, doesn't sit down first and calculate the cost to see if it is enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, not even it'll finish." All observe and begin, and they begin to ridicule him. You know, traditionally, the interpretation is a simple one. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, then you need to count the cost. Are you really willing to pay the price? The problem with that is, is that's not what the context indicates by the words that are used. For example, it says for. It doesn't say therefore or likewise. It says for which one of you. And so the argument can be made in a strong argument that, you know, the person who is... Carefully evaluating us is not ourselves, but God to see whether he can trust you and me and count on us to complete the work that Jesus began in reaching this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, he has entrusted to his disciples a work that he has begun he has given us the privilege to go into the world and to, to, to share Christ and Him crucified. He's given us the privilege to go into the world and to make disciples. And a careful evaluation is on the part of God who would say, you know what, I want to make sure that you are someone that I can count on and the only way we're going to do that is we're going to have to weed out the rest of you who, you know what, are just going to crumble and fail whenever the heat takes place. You know, can you finish what Jesus has begun? Can you face the obstacles that are there? That's why he's saying that, you know what, we're in a battle. You know, the, the, you look at the battle that's there. and Another met a king in battle and will not sit down first, take counsel, whether he's strong enough. Hey, can we do this? Can we accomplish this? Lord, we need your wisdom. We need your strength. We need your power. How do we go about this? You know, we need your spirit to move in power and, and, and tear, tear up the hearts of those who we're going to sow seed. We can't do any of that. And so he's saying, hey, Chuck, you know what, can I count on you? To finish the course, to keep the faith, you know, to, to, to be as Paul said, you know, get to the end of the life and say, God, you know what, I did all that you've required of me. I consider Jesus who endured that hostility so I wouldn't grow weary and, and, and lose heart. I was steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing my toil was not in vain. You know, it means, you stop and think about it, he clears out the masses of people and says, look, this is what, this is who I have left. And some of you go, well, you know, does that... Hey, all you got to do is look around. Look around at all those who profess faith in Christ and then look at those who are actually doing His work. I hear it all the time in churches. You know, 80%, you know, you know, 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people, 80% of the giving done by 20% of the people, 80% of the service done by 20% of the people. I want this church to be so radically different that you know what? All of us are involved in his service. All of us are involved in his kingdom's work. All of us are putting him first and loving with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. All of us are going to finish the task. All of us are willing to face the obstacles that are going to come before us and count on it because the devil wants to stop God. he can't and so count on those obstacles and count on those trials and those persecutions but count on God using that darkness to project his light all of us see we need to look and that careful evaluation is a part of God looking at each one of us He, he considers you know he looks around the earth and he looks at those whom he can choose to call out of the masses and say you come and follow me I've got a job for you and we've got to be ready to say yes sir i'm at your command i'm reporting for duty i obey your orders and not shrink from it how do we apply what we just learned discipleship means continual effectiveness continual it says therefore now we got therefore he says therefore in verse 33 therefore no one of you can be my disciple who doesn't give up all his possessions Nothing can take the place of following the Lord. Nothing holds you back. No relationship, no thing, no stuff, nothing. He says, and then he says, therefore salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? The reality is salt is always salt. But salt can be so diluted by other things that it loses its effectiveness. And that's what's happened to many of God's people. We are salt and we are light. But we are losing our effectiveness because we have become so diluted by the things of this world that it, we are not tasty anymore. We are not creating a spiritual thirst in the, in the lives of those around us who don't know our Lord and don't know our Savior. There is nothing in our life that's worth following. There's no peace. There's no joy. Not because we shouldn't have it, but because the things of this world, the worries of the world, deceitfulness of riches, all the other stuff, has crowded out what God wants to do through our life. He wants us to be salt. He wants us to preserve the society from you know the hell-bent direction that it's in. He wants us to step up and say, no, we won't sit for that. We won't take that. We will not allow that. We will stand up to that. We won't allow godless people to take over our nation and get rid of under God and get rid of everything that's going on. You know, 30, 40 years ago they threw God out of the classroom and look at the generation that it's produced. No wonder where it's such a mess. And it's all because God's people stood back and went, oh, okay. And then we introduced evolution in our culture. And all of a sudden, we don't, we don't believe in a, in a divine creator. We don't believe we're creating the image and likeness of God. And so why not just throw away this baby, this unborn child? It's just ooze. It's just sludge. It's just something that will evolve into something. And so these are the things that we have reaped because we have sown trying to get God out of our culture. And we have got to get to the point as a nation of believers where we step up and say, we have had enough of this. We have had enough of this. We've got to be salt. We've got to preserve our culture. And if we don't preserve our culture, then God help us because we will all suffer the consequences of the direction that we're going. See, it's as if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways I will then hear their prayers and I will heal their lamb. But it's God's people. He doesn't count on unbelievers to come to Him. He's counting on God's people to repent of the sin in our life. So that when we pray to Him, He will hear us and He will heal us. It's time that we get to be salty again. It's time that we create thirst and spiritual things. And how can we do it if we are just like everybody else in the world? We are not to be conformed but transformed by the renewing of our mind through the word of God. So we'll know what God's will is. Are you, th- are, are you salty? Are you creating thirst? Are you creating his presence to be felt in the seasons of the life of your family and friends and church and society? His life brims with vitality. You know, salty saints bring zest and gusto into life. So not only be pigs, let's be salty pigs. <laughs> that create a thirst for spiritual things. God is not concerned about quantity. He's looking for quality. He's looking for a few good men, godly men and women to enlist in his service today. And the question that I have is, can God count on you to be one of them? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the difficult truth of your word. And God, I pray for every person that hears these words that they would really examine themselves to see whether they are really salty or if they have become so diluted by the things of the world that we have nothing to offer. God, help us to understand the difference between a believer, one who has come to faith in Christ and repented of their sins and responded to Him and received Him as Savior, versus the ones that God, you're going to use to turn this culture back to you, a disciple who is sold out and loves you more than anyone and anything, who's willing to walk away from all of it just as John Bunyan was willing to go to prison and trusting his family into your care and not compromising truth. And God, how you used that time in prison to write a novel that has has led millions of people to faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation. God, help us to see that the persecution and the affliction and the, the trials of this life are a platform for you to reach this world with your word. God, may we be obedient. May we be like Isaiah who said, Lord, here I am, send me. May we not be content to just fill the hours of this life with the useless activities of this world but seek out deeper spiritual truth. May we as parents impart that love for you to our children so that they recognize that there's nothing more important in life than Jesus Christ and Him crucified, Lord and Savior of each of our lives, who has trusted in Him. And may we make a difference from this day forward and stop being content for anything less. In Jesus' name, amen.